Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, Monday, Thursday, April 9th, we are studying Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. The time has finally come. Jesus dies on the cross. And everything that surrounds that seemingly simple event preaches to us the great importance of what Jesus has done for sinners. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor John Busman. Pastor Busman serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Cullman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you so much for having me again. Blessed Monday, Thursday to you, Pastor Busman. As we get started today, help us with some context. We're, we're nearing the main event. What, what do we need to recall from the, the previous context, from the, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, that will help us as we dig into today's verses particularly? Well, everything really comes to a head here. Everything that, uh, that uh, Jesus has been doing in his ministry has been leading up to this point, whether the people who were following him, the disciples included, uh, recognized that or not. Uh, here we are, uh, having come through the uh, celebration of the Passover um, into the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, which is really what, uh, what today, Monday, Thursday, is all about, uh, the back and forth through the night with Caiaphas and, and Pilate, uh, and according to Luke, also Herod, uh, the crowd getting riled up, uh, begging, pleading, commanding Pilate to uh, hand Jesus over to be crucified, and now Jesus uh, upon the cross uh, being blasphemed, literally, uh, by those who, uh, who were passing by and now uh, getting very near to the, to the point of the death of Jesus. Let's go ahead and read the text for today. It's only, only a few verses, but there's so much packed in here. We're in Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, 
And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. Pastor Busman, the first detail that Matthew gives us in our text is he tells us what time it is, and he talks about the darkness that covers all the land. What's going on in verse 45? Uh, we see, uh, first of all, creation itself responding to what's going on on the cross. Uh, you know, the things that the Old Testament talks about when it speaks of the great and terrible day of the Lord, that is uh, upon all the people there, it is upon creation, it is upon us. It's the day of judgment, uh, except that judgment is coming upon the world through what is happening to God's own Son. That darkness is said to last from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. That's noon, uh, 12 noon to uh, to 3 o'clock. So right there in the middle of the day in the in the early afternoon, there's also uh, quite the comparison here to uh, to the plagues. Uh, Jesus being the uh, the greater Passover Lamb who is to be sacrificed, uh, who, whose blood uh, causes God's wrath to pass over us. Yet we know from Exodus that the plague before that tenth plague was the plague of darkness. So we see some consistency there uh, in, in connection not only with the great and terrible day of the Lord, uh, but also with the ninth, uh, with the ninth plague, uh, the plague of darkness. Those those Old Testament connections are, are very important. So this was last oh July, probably when we were in the Book of Exodus here on Sharper Iron. We looked at those plagues, uh, and the parallels here are are quite striking. To think about Jesus as the Passover Lamb, and then to see that ninth plague as well come into play. And the, the day of the Lord, we looked at the book of Amos earlier on Sharper Iron. That was this last fall. And that's one of the big themes of, of Amos and, and really many of the minor prophets. And, and in Amos chapter 5, he's talking about that day of the Lord. And he says it is darkness and not light. He, he says that a couple of times. And, and to see all of that here is, is quite striking precisely for the reason that you brought out. All of this is is coming down on Jesus, the the judgment, the wrath and, of God. Go ahead. And the you know the audience here, the the ones who are standing around, they're they're the they're really the ones who who should get it. They're the ones who should really know the uh, the scriptures and and be able to make these connections, uh, especially with uh, these prophets, but, but also you think of, of the story of salvation for them, the Exodus itself, yet they're the ones who are, uh, who are 
completely blind to to what's going on. They're the ones who are standing in this darkness, not uh, not comprehending that uh, that this is the salvation of the world uh, being accomplished for them there on the cross. The, the irony of it has been very striking throughout this narrative, because they often, Jesus' enemies will often say the, the exact right words. They will say true things about Jesus, but they won't believe them. And and to they fail to see that all these things that they are saying, they're saying in mockery and blasphemy, as you said earlier, but all these things are, are actually true, that, that he is the Christ, precisely because he doesn't save himself. He, he, he is the Savior because he doesn't come down from the cross. And, and they miss that. And yet the, the wonder of it all, the grace of it all, is that Jesus is doing this for them. He goes into the darkness. The, the wrath, the judgment that he's experiencing here in this darkness is done for precisely these people. I know it's in, it's in Luke's gospel, I know, but he, but he says from the cross, Father, forgive them. But they do not know what they're doing, and that's what he's doing right at this moment there in the darkness of the cross. Right, they're not they're not exempt, uh, or they don't lose out on the forgiveness because they're standing there uh, blaspheming him, or they're uh, cheering on his crucifixion, or anything like this. Uh, what what does the group say? Uh, his blood be on us and on our children, and literally it is for them, for their salvation. Mm-hmm. So the, the scene then continues. It's, it's dark from the 6th to the ninth hour. That's from noon to 3 p.m., as you said. And, and the next thing that Matthew gives us, and these are the only words of Jesus from the cross that Matthew records. He does say other things from the cross we know, but Matthew only records these words of Jesus from the, from the cross. And he records them both in Aramaic, and then he gives the, the translation. And the words, the, the prayer in English goes like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and given that these are the only words of Jesus that Matthew records from the cross, it seems that they're quite important. Begin to unpack these words, this prayer of Jesus, Pastor Busman. Yeah, this is a, a reference all the way back, <clears throat> all the way back to uh, David's words in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with these words, my God, my God. Uh, why have you forsaken me? The psalm goes on. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Those of you who uh, join in worship this evening, unfortunately for the vast majority of of our uh, nation, that will not be in person, but it will be <clears throat> through uh, some sort of stream on the Internet. You will hear this psalm. Uh, and there are several references here beyond uh, this, my God, my God, why have you uh, forsaken me? Going so far as is dividing the clothes and the uh, the wagging their heads at him. Um, but what does this say? What does this mean? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it's It means what it says. Christ, the Son, has been abandoned, has been abandoned, forsaken by the Father. We took a, a break to, to work on some audio issues, but we are back, and we're, we're talking about the cry of dereliction, which is there in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And, and Pastor Busman, you were telling us that, that what Jesus says is what he says, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, was forsaken by his Father, which is just mind-blowing to think about. And the mystery of the Trinity here is in, in full display. And the mystery of, of the Son's incarnation, that, that he is true God and, and true man at the same time, all of this is, is on full display. But what we, what we want to understand here is, is that Jesus is doing this for us, for sinners. So, so keep, keep going on, on this cry of dereliction and its importance for us. Sure. Matthew uh, does say that, you know, Jesus came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, uh, that, that Jesus is receiving our own wrath, even the wrath that belongs to the one standing around him. Uh, and, then, and then one of the last things that I was, I was saying, I don't know if it was heard, was that everybody through Matthew's gospel has been doing their work to kill, to kill Jesus by any means necessary, even going all the way back to, to Herod from the beginning with Jesus as, as an infant. And now, on top of that, comes the wrath of, of the Father. Uh, we were, uh, back in the fall, uh, when, when people could still travel, we were in Israel, and, and I was discussing several things in the Scriptures with our, with our tour guide, and and he was he was a, a very very knowledgeable uh, man according to the scriptures and and this was one of the one of the things that that he was hung up on. Uh, you know, we talked Old Testament, we talked New Testament, and his biggest question he had was, why does Jesus from the cross say, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And I was kind of taken aback by that question. I thought, you know, everything that's being accomplished for our salvation is, is, is captured in this statement, Jesus in our place. And, and, and that's so important for us to, for us to know, for us to, uh, for us to confess in these times that, that Jesus literally took on all of our sin, that, that we're not responsible for it anymore, that uh, that no matter what we have done in the past, that God does not expect us to, to quote-unquote, make up for lost time, that it was all put on Jesus in that moment uh, there on the cross. Um, this, for some, can be flipped and said, maybe it's not a cry of dereliction, but a cry of victory, uh, and, and they'll bring in that, uh, you know, when we're looking at, at psalms or anything like this, that you really need to bring in the whole context of the psalm, and that Psalm 22 ends on victory, so that this is uh, not a cry of, of defeat, uh, but it is a, a victory cry. But everything that's mentioned here, every connection that we see in this crucifixion that ties us to Psalm 22 is a connection to defeat, the dividing of the clothing, the wagging their heads, the, the mockery. Uh, it's all from that first half of the psalm. It's all pointing to this abandonment, this silence from God. Um, Jesus is, is the farthest thing from being rescued here. At this point in the gospel, everyone has either left him completely 
or is mocking him. Uh, there's there's no other way around it here. This this would be that moment. We've we've observed this throughout the passion narrative here in Matthew. How gradually Jesus is left all alone, and and this would be the height of that 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 or the the depth of that. I suppose you could say that that here Jesus literally is all alone, even abandoned by his father. And and I, I think you're right. I don't think that I would call this a cry of victory. Other than to say, but I also don't think that we should entirely leave the context of Psalm 22 behind. As you mentioned, that's going to be the psalm used in, in many streamed services tonight for Monday, Thursday. And and we don't leave out that part of the psalm that speaks of, of resurrection and speaks of the, the redemption that, that is coming on the third day. So I don't think we would leave it entirely behind. But in, in this moment, that's not that's not what's in focus. It is this abandonment that Jesus experiences by his Father for the sake of sinners. And, and the way that I've, I've often talked about this is that this is actually the moment where Jesus suffers hell for us, because, because hell is being abandoned by God, and that's what Jesus is experiencing at this moment in, in verse 46. Right. Right. Um, yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a good point, too, to not to not leave behind the rest of the psalm. Like you said, we don't stop halfway through. You know, it's not like it's not like we play games with our people and as they leave in silence, we cause them to doubt whether or not their sins are actually forgiven. You know, we 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 proclaim the gospel, this this Christ for you, uh with, of course, the hope of, of the resurrection, just like the people had standing there by the cross. They also had the hope of the resurrection. They just, they, they didn't get it. Uh, but we don't, you know, we don't kind of uh, tease people like like all of a sudden they're out of the kingdom on Thursday and Friday, but you better come back Sunday so that you can be a Christian again. No, we give them we give them that hope even on days like, and especially on days like Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. Right, right. The the cross and the resurrection go together as, as one event. And so again, like you said, this is, what's in focus here is that first half of Psalm 22. But especially as, as we look back on this today, we've got the full picture in mind and, and are able to see how these things go together, how, how Psalm 22 does inform everything that's happening. And, and keeping in mind, I mean, even, even thinking about all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that the offspring who would come is going to crush the serpent's head, but his heel will be struck in that process. And so and those things go together, that, that as Jesus is here crushing the head of Satan in victory, He's also experiencing the the striking on the heel, so we don't we don't want to separate those two things today, and especially today. I appreciate what you said there, that that as we observe Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, today and tomorrow, the the Easter vigil on Saturday, looking forward to the resurrection on Sunday, we don't we don't sort of leave we don't leave people hanging. <laughs> we 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 give right. them the full gospel. Right. Right. So, Pastor Busman, then this is this Jesus cry of dereliction there in in verse forty six. 
verse 47, you start to get the reaction of, of the people. And, and just like throughout the, this passion narrative, they don't understand what's going on at this point. So, so what, take us into how people interpret Jesus' words that are there at the cross on that day. Yeah, the, the bystanders, of course, uh, it, you know, it, it shows us a little bit about uh, crucifixion that, you know, the people are mocking, they're blaspheming. These are, these are uh, typically criminals there right outside uh, various city gates. And, uh, you know, these bystanders just, you know, they're, they're the ones who are left at this point. And they say uh, he's calling Elijah. So Elijah, uh, Eliyah or Eliyahu, and you think about um, somebody being crucified and with, with arms extended, you know, having to uh, twist and contort their body for every breath that they take, speaking is not the easiest thing. So they either flat out misinterpret what he's saying, Ali is, is, is my God. They either completely misinterpret what he's saying, or you know, they're expecting that Jesus is, is having a hard time finishing what he's saying. Of course, you know, it's, it's speculation, and that's not necessarily the best thing to do. But either way, they miss it. Uh, they, they're confused about Jesus's words, which kind of runs along the, the, the gun, the narrative of the gospel that the people are hearing the word, they're hearing the word, but they misinterpret it, right? Even the function of Elijah, Elijah is not a savior. Elijah was seen and prophesied about as a, as a restorer not a savior. So they're, they're, they're automatically missing the point, right? He's, uh, this man is, is calling Elijah. No, he's, he's crying out to God, crying out to the father, uh, but they, but they miss it here. And this, this will come back around, uh, in a few, in a few verses. Well, and, and the fact that, that he's calling out to Elijah or they, they think, excuse me, that he's calling out to Elijah it brings to mind some of the other references that we've heard to Elijah previously in Matthew's gospel. And, and from Jesus' own lips, the Elijah who was to come was John, John the baptizer. But these people who are here mocking Jesus, they missed that too, which is, is quite telling. Right. They, they, don't, they don't receive John the Baptist. They kill him. <laughs> and, or they, you know, he, he, he's killed on their watch. Um, so if they don't re- if they don't receive the one who prepared the way, they're not going to receive the one whose way was prepared. He he's going to meet uh, he's he's going to meet the same end as, uh, as as he did, and that's exactly what happens here. Right. Once once again, we see Jesus following in the footsteps of the one who was sent to prepare the way for him. John, John was beheaded. Here, Jesus is killed as well. We're going to take a look at that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. Take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
Websites selling binary options claim they are low-cost, high-reward investments. What they don't tell you is that binary options are high-risk bets where the odds are stacked against you, that withdrawing money is often almost impossible, and the representatives will contact you with intense sales tactics or even threats. Protect yourself. Don't let anyone pressure you into making investments or quick decisions. Visit MissouriProtectsInvestors.com to learn more. Paid for by the Missouri Secretary of State's Investor Education and Protection Fund. In many ways, St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bel Air, Maryland is just like any other Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Church. They have worship services each Sunday and reach out to their community, but one thing they don't do is pay their electric bill. Hello, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. And if you want to hear what St. Matthew actually did to eliminate their electric bill, just visit interesttime.org. That's interesttime.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this April 9th, Monday, Thursday. We're looking at Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56, the death of Jesus on the cross. We've got Pastor John Busman from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama, helping us this morning. Pastor Busman, prior to the break, we, we had looked at Jesus' cry of dereliction, the reaction of the crowd that once again they don't they don't get it just as they missed john the elijah who was to come so they have missed jesus the son of god and now jesus follows in the steps of his of his predecessor and and he dies and and verse 50 is is very short just like we we observed previously in verse oh where is it verse 35 matthew just says and when they had crucified him, that's all you get for the moment of crucifixion. Here, here it's a, a bit more, but it's it's reported very simply that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Take us into the actual death of Jesus right there in verse 50. Yeah, Jesus cried out again. What, you know, at, at this point, what was the cry? Is it, you know, is, is it actually words that Jesus is? Is crying out? Uh, is he saying, uh, "Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani?" Again, uh, you know, it says it does say Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. So, ultimately, though, we don't know what what he cried. Matthew um, doesn't um, document that for it, uh, document that for us, but. The fact that he he cries out again with a loud voice, it's 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 all he has, you know, it's all he has left. The the people who are standing around are doing the best they can to prolong this, you know, with the wait. Let us see if Elijah will come. Uh, but this is this is it. This is all we have. Jesus cries out again, and uh, and uh, releases you know, releases his spirit. So of all the, you know, every everybody else has, has left him, and now his, his own spirit is, is gone as well. I, I think that that's a, a purposeful way of phrasing it, though, that he it's released his spirit or yielded up his spirit is the way the ESV translates it there. But it, Jesus is the one who's who's doing this. His life is not taken away from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. 
as he says in John's gospel. And so and I think I think we ought to want to notice that we've we've observed this throughout the passion narrative that you've got these other human actors who are in play thinking that they're running the show, Judas, the chief priests and others. And yet behind all of this is the will of God to save sinners. And even here at his very death, Jesus is the one to give up his spirit. It's not taken away from him. No, they think they're in control the whole, the whole time. Uh, the, the plotting together uh, throughout the gospel, yet when, and, and John you know, documents this probably the best of anybody, that, that Jesus, no matter how they try to kill him or how they try to arrest him throughout the gospel, he, he escapes their, uh, their, their grip. And it's not like he's sneaking around or anything. He walks right through the middle of them. Uh, you know, he's in control the whole time, even when it doesn't look like it. Right? Even even nailed to a cross, unable to speak at the end, and just crying out, he's still in control. Uh, you know, yielding up, uh, releasing his spirit, as it were. So that's the moment of Jesus' death in verse 50. And, and in case we missed it, we're going to get several signs that are going to preach to us the importance of what has just happened. Matthew highlights this for us in verse 51. He starts with, behold, pay attention, look here. And he's going to give us several things that happened upon the moment of Jesus' death that in their own way are each going to preach to us the importance of what has just happened. Now, the first of those is the curtain of the temple being torn into from top to bottom. Pastor Busman, help us to understand what's being preached to us with that event. Yeah, you know, these are so interesting. These are all, you know, end times responses to, to the death of Jesus. And perhaps the, the curtain of the temple being torn into is, is the one people are the quickest to provide an answer to, to what it means. Yet it, 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 it may be one of the, the more difficult, and it may be the one that doesn't have necessarily a, a single answer. Uh, when people typically talk about the temple curtain, they, they speak of uh, a curtain that divided the holy place in the temple from the holy of holies, the curtain that, that guarded, as it were, the, the Ark of the Covenant. However, there was another temple curtain that Josephus actually tells us about, and it divided the outside of the temple from the holy place. And uh, he tells us that, that this curtain was massive, that uh, it was made of Babylonian tapestry, and that the design of it actually uh, typified the universe that it was that it was uh, made uh, like the heavens. So, which curtain tore in two? And uh, this is this is where the context of Matthew may help us out here. That uh, Jesus in the gospel uh, speaks of. The, the temple and the sanctuary 
and the abuse of the temple and the sanctuary. So perhaps this was the outer curtain, the one that, that divided the, the outside of the temple uh, from the holy place. But you'll hear all kinds of all, all kinds of explanations as to what this means, where the high priesthood is over, that God's glory is leaving Jerusalem and, and going everywhere, that that people now have direct access to to God through the death of Jesus. And it's not that any of those things are are wrong, but this for me is an example that we ought not be so quick to to throw an interpretation uh, on something when 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 there there may be a little bit more uh, there may be a little bit more that's that's going on here. Right. So I mean, for example, just just to make that point again, in in Hebrews chapter ten, verses nineteen and following, the writer of Hebrews says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and, and he goes on, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and he goes on, right. I don't I don't want to dig into that too much, but so, so there's an example where it, it seems at least that this matter of the curtain being torn is being used by the writer of the Hebrews to preach that through Jesus we have access to God rather than through the temple. Now, now the question we're asking, though, and this is what we're struggling with, is: is that what's being communicated here in Matthew chapter twenty-seven? Is it the only thing that's being communicated in Matthew chapter twenty-seven? Because, like you said, there there's context within Matthew's gospel that that reminds us of the destruction of the temple. Jesus spent a lot of time talking about the destruction of the temple in Matthew chapter twenty-four, and so maybe that that should be on our minds as well. And I think I think you're wise to to counsel us to say. Let's not be too quick to jump to just one thing and say that that's all that's going on here. But let's take a look at the, the full scriptural weight of evidence and, and let that inform how we talk about this tearing of the temple curtain. Right. And, and you know, different gospel writers will, you know, often use the same things that are happening and put a different force upon uh or give us another angle for meaning to something. You know, Mark, for example, documents this temple curtain being uh, being rent asunder as well. Yet in the beginning of his gospel, he talks about the heavens splitting open at at Jesus's baptism. So, you know, this is a, a big a big thing for biblical interpretation is letting the gospel writer himself uh, inform the way we're interpreting uh, something that's going on. You know, so we need to take into consideration Matthew's emphasis on the temple, the destruction of the temple, uh, that those inside have rejected the Son of God and now are under judgment, literally being torn apart. Uh, and, and also this, uh, you know, the abolishment of, uh, you know, well, let me, let me say this too. If if we're talking about the abolishment of the sacrifice or something like this, it would make a little bit more sense for uh, you know Matthew to document that maybe during the earthquake the altar was smashed, right? Uh, so you know we need to let each gospel writer tell tell us his account in his way and and, and use the context of his gospel to to inform 
uh, our interpretation. Right, right, and 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 not be too rigid in expecting a, it's only one, perhaps. Right? That that what right. the writer to the Hebrews says is perfectly true and remains true, even if mm-hmm. Matthew's trying to emphasize something a bit different for us. So the next Absolutely. the next sign that Matthew the next sign that Matthew records is the the earth shaking and the rocks being split. What do we see there, Pastor Busman? Uh, <laughs> earthquake, rocks splitting. This is, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's cosmic what is happening and all all is a response to um to the to the death of jesus that that this is creation the very creation that that was spoken into existence through that very word of god is uh responding here right Mm. and uh and you can't avoid it you know nobody no matter how far they ran, no matter where they're hiding, everybody's going to know that something has happened here. Something completely unnatural in the middle of the day is is going on. This Jesus that they thought they could just easily get rid of, uh, they they've got they've got another thing coming. They they mm. they've crucified uh, not just anyone. Uh, and and of course the the people standing around the cross, the Romans are actually going to get it that that the significance of what has happened. Before Matthew records that, he he gets this. There's this very, I hesitate to call it odd, but but it is. It's just it stands out that that there's this matter of tombs being opened and bodies coming out. So so Pastor Busman, that's recorded in verses 52 and 53. Help us to at least try to. And this is difficult, I know, but to try to get a grasp on well, what exactly is Matthew describing, and and then more importantly, what does that preach to us about Jesus' resurrection? I'm mean, excuse his death on the cross. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, the first the first thing that I love about this is the way the New Testament speaks of those who have uh, those who have died in the faith, as uh, many of those who had who had fallen asleep. It. it just that language gives us hope that they will wake up, that they will, that they will be raised. And then the text says, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the Holy city. So what is going on here? The tombs were opened on Friday, but these people didn't go into the Holy city until, until Sunday. Like, what are they, what are they doing here? Uh, however, grammatically you could actually render this a, a little bit differently to uh, after coming out of the tombs, they entered the holy city. Ultimately, uh, who in the world knows? But again, this is in an end times response to the death of Jesus. You think back to Ezekiel in chapter 37 with the valley of dry bones, and you look at what happens in Ezekiel's book, after the Valley of Dry Bones, and you begin to have uh, restoration, restoration of God's people, restoration of the land, uh, living water flowing from the temple. But again, we don't need to just act like this is the easiest thing in the world to interpret. Matthew's the only one to document this. It is difficult but ultimately what it's showing is that all of creation is responding to the death of Jesus. The hope that's there, 
Jesus dies, the saints live. It's an immediate response. Jesus dies, the saints live. There is our hope. I think that this event helps to inform a little bit of what we were talking about earlier with Jesus praying from Psalm 22 and and whether, you know, how much of the psalm should we have in view? So Jesus has just died. He, he had just been abandoned by God. And yet at that very moment, before his third day resurrection, you're already seeing some of the effects of what is happening. And, and this is, I think, as, as you've said, a very clearly, it's a it's a rest, a restoring effect of Jesus' death. And so this, this is all one big event. Everything that we're seeing happening here is, is intimately connected to what we're going to see happen on the third day. And already in Jesus' death, this, this victory that he is winning over, over his enemies is being given out even before before he rises from the dead on the third day. It's, I mean, I think it's very similar to what he does in his, in his miracles of healing and restoration. He hasn't yet died and risen at that point. But knowing that that's coming, the effects are being brought ahead of time. And, and I think that's, maybe that, that's at least one thing that's going on here with this, this matter of the saints coming out of their tombs. Pastor Busman, then, verse, verse 54, it seems Matthew builds this to a climax. And, and now we've got a centurion, an unlikely candidate, who makes an unlikely confession. Take, it into, take us into verse 54. So you have the centurion and those who are with him. They're, they're watching Jesus, right? They're the ones responsible for, for his crucifixion. And uh, more than that, they're making sure that it's done right and that he, and that he dies. It's very important for them uh, to make sure that, that the job is is finished uh, for them. Their their own lives uh, depend upon it. Yet, this is the one who makes the proper confession without blasphemy. Think about this. This is these are the same men, like I said, who crucified Jesus. The same ones who divided his clothes. The same ones who were responsible for posting the sign above his head. These are the ones. Uh, with the confession that this was the Son of God, that this is still the Son of God, uh, an unlikely bookend to the beginning of the gospel, right? The, the last people we would expect to show up after the birth of Jesus uh, were magi from the East, these Gentiles who who have the proper confession of who Jesus is. And here at the end of Jesus's life, uh, before the resurrection, it's the very, the very ones responsible for his death, the very ones who, who uh, just before this could have, could have been joining in with the mocking of Jesus. They're the ones uh, who get it. They're the ones who see the way creation is responding and they they see Jesus as who he is. The beauty of this confession is that it happens at this moment, right upon Jesus' death. Uh, of, of all the moments in Jesus' life to confess him as the Son of God, this seems perhaps the unlikeliest, to our human wisdom at least. And think, think back to St. Peter in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? 
Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he, he gets it right at that moment. But then remember just a few verses later, when Jesus says, okay, that means I'm going to go die. Peter says, no way, Lord, that's, that's not going to happen to you. And, right. and yet here, this is, this is where you get it is that Jesus is the Son of God precisely at this moment. This is the perfect place to confess Jesus as the Son of God. This is why he has come in the flesh to die and to save sinners. And so the, the context of this confession is just is huge. Absolutely. And, and you, you talk about the forgiveness of sins, especially as, as people, uh, Mike, can, can feel like the forgiveness of sins is for everyone else except them. You know, you you point people to this centurion and, and those standing by him. You know, if the if if the forgiveness of sins is for them, right? And we see this play out even more in the Book of Acts. You know, it, it's it's for us as well. Uh, there's there's nothing that that we can do that's beyond the forgiveness of sins that Jesus won for us in this moment. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. With, it, with just a couple of minutes left here, Pastor Buston, we've got two verses left. So Jesus has, has died, and these various events have happened. He's been confessed as the Son of God, and then Matthew makes mention of, of some women. Take us into verses 55 and 56. Sure. Uh, these, these women, uh, of course, not close, but looking on from a distance, they had been following Jesus. Why? In order to serve him. And again, it's, it's really missing the point here. The people who were closest to Jesus, who should get it, are, are kind, of, kind of backwards. No matter their intentions, right, no matter their intentions, it's not us who serves Jesus. It's him who serves us, right? Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And look at, look at what these women see. They see... All, all, all of the death of Jesus, even where he's, he's buried, for them, the, what's on the forefront of their minds is, is death. Death. It's only Easter will they, uh, will they see what Good Friday is, is all about. We, one of these uh, women, Mary, mother of James and John, she had interceded for James and John, asking that one sit on the right and one sit on the left when Jesus comes in his glory. They're, 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 not, they're not getting it. Uh, but even for them, even for them, Easter is coming. Easter is near. And, uh, and the eyes of all of them will be opened to, to uh, Jesus' saving work that takes place right here. The mother of the, the mention of the mother of the sons of Zebedee here is, I, I think, ties a lot of that together. As you mentioned, she, she comes earlier in the gospel and, and intercedes for her son and asks for the, the right hand and the left hand when Jesus comes in his kingdom. And, and it's as a part of that longer section where Jesus gives precisely what, what you brought out, that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And, and here, that, that same lady is, is among the women who are there to minister to Jesus. And yet, as you, as you rightly point out for us, who's really doing the serving here? It's not these women. It's Jesus. He's serving not only them, but all sinners by giving up his life into death for their forgiveness. 
Pastor John Bussman is the pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Cullman, Alabama, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. Pastor Bussman, thanks for your time today. A blessed Monday, Thursday to you. Thanks so much. Blessed Holy Week and, and uh, happy Easter to you. Our Lord Jesus Christ was forsaken by his Father completely abandoned there on the cross in the mystery of mysteries. Here is our Lord suffering the very depths of hell for you and for me, being abandoned by God so that we would not be. When, when we think we can serve him, he comes and he serves us in the greatest way possible by giving his life into death for us so that through his death, we have life now and forever. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Have a very blessed Monday, Thursday. Talk to you again tomorrow.